Um, this morning, we'll be studying Mark chapter 11, which can be found on page, page 717 of some of your pew Bibles. Again, that's Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read from the ESV version of the Bible, which might be different than the one you're reading, just a heads up. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. As they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything in it, anything on it. Then he came to it. He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed in the morning, as they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered by away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And, whatever, and whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. May God bless the reading of his word. Good 
morning, Crossbridge. It's great to worship with all of you this morning. And uh, welcome back to many of our college students. And maybe perhaps a, a welcome to those of you who are worshiping with us for the very first time. Let's actually begin with a word of prayer uh, as we prepare to receive God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word to us in the book of Psalms teaches us that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And as much as we believe that your word are these things, Lord, that it is perfect and sure and right, we also ask that you, through your word, would also do your work in our hearts and in our lives, that it would revive our souls, that it would make us wise, make our hearts rejoice and enlighten our eyes. We ask that you soften our hearts this morning, that we might be able to truly hear what you might have to say to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you're just joining us uh, this Sunday, we're, we've been working our way uh, for the past couple months to the book of Mark in this sermon series called Follow Me. So last week, we saw Jesus uh, and his disciples continue their journey on the way to Jerusalem. And now finally, in, in Mark chapter 11 today, we finally see Jesus approach and arrive in Jerusalem. Now what's different about our passage this morning is the, the way it's laid out, the way it's structured. You see, after Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, we read about Jesus encountering this bizarre fig tree. And then the scene changes, and Jesus is now in this temple that resembles much like a bazaar. He drives out the merchants and the money changers, and then suddenly we're back at the fig tree again. Now, what's happening here is this literary technique that, that Mark uses, that many scholars call a Markan sandwich. So we've hit this before, back in Mark chapter 3 and maybe a couple other chapters. Now, if you can picture a sandwich, this is kind of how it's kind of laid out. Or, or you can kind of look up here. So what Mark does is he takes this piece of bread and he kind of splits it in half, right? So he takes one story and he splits it in half, just like this butter bun, and then he inserts another story right in the middle, which is the spicy chicken filet. And there's no pickles, because then the analogy doesn't work. So with this sandwich, right, this story in the middle about the temple, that's your chicken. All right, that's what you care about, that's the central focus. But the story on the top and the bottom about the fig tree, well, it holds it together. It helps us to understand what the story about the temple in the middle is all about. One interprets the other. And so, like the sandwich, you, you take a bite, but you take it all in together. I'm not going to eat it here. So with that in mind, I'm going to put this away. I can save it for later. Let's turn to our passage this morning. And when we read about Jesus' judgment on the temple in light of his judgment on the fig tree, the first thing that we're going to see is this, that the barren temple shares the same fate as the withered tree. And again, the, the temple and the tree in this passage, they're related, they're connected. And so let's start with the tree. 
The fig tree had leaves, but no fruit. So in verses 12 to 14 and in verses 20 to 21, we read that on the following day, when they came from Bethany, that's Jesus and his disciples, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance this fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from, uh, fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now fast forward past the temple scene, we come back to the fig tree. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Mark explicitly tells us that the disciples heard it. So Peter remembers and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And so at the beginning of our passage, what we find is that Jesus is hungry. Maybe some of you can relate right now. And he sees a fig tree and there's leaves, so that's a good sign, right? But when he approaches the fig tree, he finds there's nothing but leaves. No fruit, no figs. So Jesus curses this fig tree. And when we return to the tree, it's withered to its roots. What that means is its destruction is complete. Because it didn't actually have figs or fruit, but only the appearance of it, Jesus cursed it. Because it was fruitless, its fate was fatal. Now clearly, on the surface, right, this seems a bit harsh. Like, why is Jesus destroying this harmless fig tree? What did the fig tree ever do to Jesus? I mean, sure, it didn't provide any fruit, but it couldn't, right? The text says that it wasn't even the right season yet. And if we were to take this fig tree incident just by itself, Jesus it feels like he's hangry, and he's throwing this irrational tantrum. It's like the Snickers commercial, right? You're not you when you're hungry. And so Jesus apparently needed some food, some Snickers bars. But, but that's not the point that Mark's trying to make. It's not the point that Jesus is trying to make. And so we turn to the central focus of this Mark and sandwich, the chicken, the, the temple incident, verses 15 to 19. And what we see also is that the temple had leaves, but no fruit. So in these few verses, Jesus enters the temple he begins to drive out the money changers and the merchants. And this is what Jesus was focusing on. He was focusing on the, the temple. In the beginning of our passage, we read about how Jesus had this triumphant approach to Jerusalem. Now, if you look in your Bible, some of your subheadings uh, in your Bibles might say the triumphal entry. But that's not quite entirely accurate. Because as we read through this passage, we find that, okay, it's in verse 1, when they are drawing near to Jerusalem, you know, that's when the, these crowds, maybe these crowds who've been following Jesus from Galilee or just following him along the way, including the blind man from, from last week, you know, that's, that's when they begin to celebrate his journey to Jerusalem. But verse 11, that's when Jesus actually enters Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is he goes into the temple, looks around, it's late, and he leaves. It's this strange contrast where when the humble Savior King, Christ Messiah, he enters Jerusalem, this significant city, all the rah-rah fanfare immediately disappears. Where's the crowds? 
Where is the celebration? Where is the leafy branches and the cloaks on the ground? This, the, the city, Jerusalem, that should have welcomed their king in, their savior king in, where is all the celebration? And the first thing that Jesus does is he goes straight to the temple. He looks around and he leaves. He doesn't like what he sees, but since it's already late, he leaves. He'll, he'll come back. Come back the next day and finish his business then. Now, as we've been talking about this temple, the temple was a place where sacrifices were made. The temple was a place where people would go to worship and pray. And especially with the Passover approaching, you had thousands of Jewish people who would travel from all different places and converge on Jerusalem. Traveling was difficult back then. It's not like today where you can just Uber everywhere and the challenge that you guys face is who's going to be the one to call the Uber? And they had to travel without an Uber. And they had to do so with the very animals that they had to bring along that they needed for the sacrifice, for their worship and prayer. It's not the easiest thing in the world. Now, not only did these people come to offer sacrifices to God, they also came to pay the temple tax to the Roman Empire, but the, but the temple tax, they had to be paid in a particular currency. So imagine coming to church, come, imagine coming to church today, and you find out that the only forms of payment now that we take are money orders in Canadian dollars. And so what happens, right? It's a pain. And so these Jewish people thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I could travel all the way from home, just have the animal there when I get to Jerusalem? Wouldn't it be nice if, if, you know, on the way to Temple, I didn't have to stop by Western Union or TravelX and exchange my money? And so these merchants and these money changes, well, saw an opportunity to make things easier, to set up shop right within the courts of the Temple. We have everything you need right here. All you have to do is bring yourself. You can get along, proceed with your rituals and your practices for your worship and your prayer. Now, what's the problem here? You know, reading this passage, we might be quick to assume that Jesus was angry at corrupt business practices, maybe unjust interest rates, unfair service charges, you know, especially because in this passage, Jesus says you have made this house of prayer into a den of robbers. But I think the primary issue, the main issue that Jesus is really upset about, in Jesus' mind, was the location, not the integrity of the business practice. You see, the problem here was that these practices were taking place in God's temple, the place of worship and prayer. And because of this, it was preventing them from actually being a place of worship and prayer. And in Mark's account, specifically, Jesus adds, for all the nations... So not only was it making it hard for people to worship, but it was also making it hard for the Gentiles to come and worship because the marketplace, this bazaar, was set up in the area where the Gentiles could only go. So imagine this again. You come to the temple one day, and there you find animals everywhere. You see them. You smell them. You hear them. You hear the jangling of coins as people exchange their money. In the midst of all that, some of you are just trying to worship God, trying to pray to God. And the reality of the situation is that unless you have an exorbitant amount of focus, you you can't. 
Your senses are being bombarded by what's going on around you. So imagine coming to Sunday service this morning. You find a night market here in the middle of the day. You're trying to worship God, but the worship leader is leading the congregation scene, and you're saying, hungry, I come to you, for I know you satisfy, and you can't focus. Or you come to church, and during offering, as you're, as you're trying to give prayerfully to God, you start hearing the people around you as the offering bag is passed. Hey, psst, I don't have any cash. Can you pay for me? I'll Venmo you back. All right, great. What's your Venmo? I see like five Kevins. Which one are you? <laughs> Not helpful at all. The problem was that this house of prayer was no longer a house of prayer. It looked like one from the outside. It had leaves. It had the appearance. But no fruit. So even though the fig tree incident seems quite bizarre, when we understand it in relation to what's going on with the temple, it makes a lot more sense. What Jesus is doing now in our passage is he's acting out a parable of God's judgment on the temple. Now we know, some of us, from reading the gospel, that gospels that Jesus usually speaks parables. But in this case, in today's passage, Jesus is acting out a parable. So with the fig tree, he's acting it out. And for us as readers and Mark's readers, we're supposed to read this and understand that what Jesus is acting out uh, is supposed to symbolize what God is going to do to the, to the temple. That's to say that Jesus' judgment on the fig tree is a parable of God's judgment on the temple. And so with the fig tree, it didn't have fruit, for it was not the season for figs. Now, again, from the text, we might think, you know, Jesus is from the area. He, he grew up in the area. He should have known, right? Like, why is he going to a tree expecting figs if he knows it's not the season? Now, I would venture to say that he probably knew that it was not the season for figs because he grew up in the area. And so what's the point? One commentator put it this way, that a tree with full leaves at, at this season is making a promise it cannot fulfill. So too is Israel. The temple would have all the appearances of fruit, but it would not deliver. And so what's the result? The barren temple shares the same fate as the withered tree. When Jesus says, but you have made it a den of robbers, he's quoting from Jeremiah 7.11. Now, if you continue kind of reading the context of the passage, you'll kind of see what Jesus is driving at. So in the next few verses in Jeremiah 7, 12 to 14, God is saying there, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. So what's going on in our passage today is Jesus is not just cleansing and clearing out the temple. He's closing it down. 
Like the fig tree, because it was fruitless, its fate was fatal. And Jesus, drawing upon this Jeremiah passage, and these early readers, his audience, would have, would have known what's going on. They put their trust in this place rather than in God. They put their trust in all these leaves and all these rituals and all these practices rather than in God himself. Now this raises an important question for us today. So what? What difference does it make? I mean, clearly, we don't have a temple today. I don't think we have any fig trees nearby. So what does this passage mean for us? Now, I think on a secondary level, what God says to us could include the importance of bearing fruit as individual followers of Jesus Christ. On a secondary level, what God says to us through what he says to them could include the importance of how we even conduct our worship in a way that's not distracting, but welcoming to others from the youngest of us, from the babies all the way to the oldest, even to the newcomers and the outsiders, and in a way that also furthers God's promise to Abraham of being a blessing to the nations. And I think those are good areas for us as a church to consider. Now, at the same time, as we look at this passage, when we look at this Mark and Sandwich, the focus is on God's judgment on the temple for not being a house of prayer. And so this begs the question, if we kind of know its fate, where then is the place of prayer if not the temple? Where then is the place of prayer if not the temple? This is God's word to us today through Mark, that the place of prayer continues on with the people of God. And so in verses 22 to 25, the passage continues, and Peter remarks there, look, Rabbi, the, the fig tree you cursed is dead. And Jesus has an inter interesting response. Have faith in God. Now, to some of us, it might seem a little bit random, or peculiar, but for kind of following the train of thought, we, we kind of see what's going on with the temple. We see that Jesus is quoting from Jeremiah, and from Jeremiah's passage, we saw that they put their trust in this place. And Peter, maybe perhaps sensing what's going on with this message about the temple, now Jesus responds to that and says, have faith in God. And it's interesting. Fig tree is dead. It signals the fate of the temple. So Jesus' response now is to focus on this group of followers, on, on these disciples. He wants to change their focus from the temple to some, something else. The temple, which should have been this house of prayer, will be replaced by this community of Jesus' followers, who together, in community, bear fruit in prayer. And so Jesus gives two aspects of how this place of prayer will continue on with the people of God. First, this house of prayer, us, the church, has faith in God. But this faith is not a general one, because Jesus follows up with specific examples of what this faith looks like. It's faith in God's power. So, for example, in verse 23, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, 
be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now that seems like an impossible thing, right? But I think that's the point. It demonstrates our faith in God's miraculous power. And we saw perhaps something similar when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Elder Chris, when he preached a couple weeks ago on that passage, he made the point that there was probably no gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle where uh, a camel would, would have to bend down to get through. The point there, too, was that it was impossible. Which is why Jesus follows that up by saying all things are possible with God. Likewise, the prayer with faith that Jesus describes here, you know, the, this prayer that this new community of believers, that the church, the local church should have, it's one that demonstrates God's power. And so when we pray together, our posture and our speech should have the presumption of God's sovereign power over all things. We come to him, we come before him knowing that what we ask, when we ask things in alignment with his will to further his kingdom, he can do. He is able to do because he is God. Now here's the clarification of the caveat. While this passage is uh, advocating for, or, or perhaps what it's not advocating for, is this name-it-and-claim-it theology. Because I think many of us, we read this passage maybe out of context, we'll, we'll probably think, all right, Jesus, he says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And so we think, all right, great, God is Santa Claus, and I have my Christmas list. But believing that doesn't really match up to the rest of scripture. So let me give you an example. I have a friend who, when his kids were younger, and he was raising up his, uh, his children, he would have two rules, only two rules in this household that he would tell them. So he would tell his kids, you can uh, follow these two rules. Love God and do whatever you want. So obviously, because we're by nature sinful creatures, the kids think they're smart, and respond back with something like, oh, we can do whatever we want, right? So that means I don't have to, you know, share my video games with my brother or sister, or, you know, I can tease this person or lie here or not do my homework or what have you. And so what was his response? If you love God, would you do those things? Likewise, and yeah, we can ask for a Tesla we can pray for Tom Brady to play until he's 45 and at a high level so that we can get Super Bowl number seven. But if we love God, if we love Jesus, and Mark's entire gospel is about discipleship, then I think that when Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, what we ask will either be in line with God's will or in submission to God's will. To put it another way, we will seek what God desires in prayer, or if we're unsure, we will open ourselves up to God's will rather than to impose our will upon God. There's many avenues for our church to be a community of prayer, to be the house of prayer. Small groups and fellowships, the congregational prayer every Sunday, 
the Crossbridge prayer meeting that happens every third Wednesday of the month at 7 p.m. in the church office. A little plug there. Every week you find these prayer bulletins in your uh, prayer guides in your bulletin. And, and yes, you know, we can use it to pray individually, but we can also use it to pray corporately as well. And so as we go forth in prayer, as this new house of prayer, Jesus' focus is that we do so with immense, great faith. Not in ourselves, but in the one to whom we are praying. Now much of prayer, oftentimes, is a response to God. You know, as a church that focuses a lot on, you know, sticking to the text and being very Bible-based and reading Scripture and studying it and wanting to hear God's Word, that's one half of the communication. God speaks to us predominantly, primarily, through His Word today. So how do we respond? We respond in prayer. We pray Scripture. We respond to that Scripture to God. In prayer. And as we pray, we pray things like we, we want to see Crossbridge grow. We want to see CBCGB grow. We want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We want to see God use the local church, this local church, to advance his kingdom purposes. And so when we pray for these things, we can be bold and confident and hopeful not in ourselves, but in God, knowing that it's not by our power, but by His, for His glory and our good. So the place of prayer is no longer the temple. It continues on to the people of God. Now here's the second aspect that Jesus gives with regards to how we're to bear fruit in this way, how we're to pray. This house of prayer has forgiveness for one another. Jesus is describing the necessity of forgiving others when it comes to our own prayers for forgiveness, when it comes to us being a house of prayer, when it comes to even effective prayers. He says in verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It's a challenge. It also makes sense that we would not only see this vertical aspect between us and God, having faith in him and relying on him, looking towards him, but also this horizontal aspect between each other in this new place of prayer, the people of God. If we're to be a house of worship and prayer, a community of disciples of Jesus Christ, then the relationships and reconciliation between God's people are important as well. It's part of the fruit that we're supposed to bear. Now, when we look at the wider picture of Scripture, reconciliation presumes forgiveness. Forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, not, the, the, not perhaps the kind of forgiveness that we hear from the, the outside world where, you know, just forgive them, you know, don't let them rent space in your head. You know, biblical forgiveness presumes Repentance. So it might be that, that you have something against someone or you know that someone has something against you. And in both cases, Scripture tells us to go to that brother and sister and be reconciled. 
Now, at the same time, we know that we, we live in a broken world. And sometimes repentance and therefore forgiveness and reconciliation, it's not possible. Maybe the person is unwilling or the person is no longer around. And in cases where forgiveness is not presently possible, I think we take a posture of forbearance, suspending judgment, showing grace, always with a view and a hope towards repentance, but ultimately allowing God to be the arbiter of this situation. And when we take a step back further from Mark 11, we see that the place of prayer is no longer the temple, but the people of God. This community of believers, us, our church, our congregation, our fellowships, our small groups, are to bear fruit as a house of prayer. One that prays together with faith and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that this would be true in our lives, in our communities, in our church. That you would unite us by your spirit and your word. That we would be a house of prayer. A house of worship and prayer that bears fruit, not just the appearance of fruit, not just leaves, but fruit that, that manifests itself in a prayer-filled life in this community, filled with faith in you and forgiveness for one another. We give thanks and we pay this in Jesus' name.